This is the Monday, May 8, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine hoists the Jolly Roger, that notorious black flag with a skull and crossbones that sent shivers down the spines of God-fearing men and women on the high seas, but that also signaled you had one and only one chance to surrender. If a pirate ship struck the black flag and ran a blood-red one up the mast, it meant your ship and your crew were in for a very bad day. As we sail along and sing some sea chanties, we'll meet Massachusetts fisherman Philip Ashton, whose capture and escape from pirates earned him status as America's real-life Robinson Crusoe. We'll also cross swords with Ashton's nemesis, the cruel pirate Edward Lowe. Lowe is forgotten today, but in the 1720s, he surpassed even the infamous Blackbeard, capturing more plunder and killing more people, often after horrifically torturing them first. Our captain on these treacherous seas is Greg Fleming, author of the Boston Globe bestseller, At the Point of a Cutlass, The Pirate Capture, Bold Escape, and Lonely Exile, of Philip Ashton. Greg is a New England native and former journalist with a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can get to know him by visiting gregfleming.com, following Fleming underscore Greg on Twitter, or liking facebook.com slash point of the cutlass. Okay, now that we've strung our eye patches on and perched those regulation parrots on our shoulders, let's join Greg Fleming for a pirate's tale at the point of a cutlass. I'm joined on the line by Greg Fleming, author of At the Point of a Cutlass, The Pirate Capture, Bold Escape, and Lonely Exile of Philip Ashton. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Thanks for having me. Greg, Philip Ashton's story is one of those you just love to pick up. It doesn't even seem real. It's so riveting, and it's all the more riveting because it's true. It's real life. Yet, like Mo Green from The Vegas of the Godfather, there's not a plaque, not a statue, nothing to remember, Ashton, except your book here now. There's nothing in his hometown, Marblehead, Massachusetts, or where he was captured off Nova Scotia, not even the island off of the coast of Honduras where he escaped and lived as a castaway has any mention of him. So I wonder how is it possible that this story with so much going for it disappeared from history and how did you find it and become inspired to write at the point of a cutlass? 
Well, you're right. I mean, it's an incredible story. And I think at the time that it was first published in 1725, it was quite well known on both sides of the Atlantic. But over the years, it disappeared and largely was forgotten. I discovered this story almost by chance. I was reading another history of the pirate Henry Morgan by Stephen Talty. And about a third of the way through the book, he has a single quote from this young man, Philip Ashton. And I was struck by that, curious as to how there could have been a quote or a written recollection of someone who'd sailed aboard a pirate ship. So I dug into the story. I found out that there was, in fact, a real man named Philip Ashton who'd lived in the early 1700s. He had, in fact, been captured by one of the worst pirates of the era. He had sailed with these pirates for nine months and then remarkably had escaped and lived as a castaway on an uninhabited island for close to two years. And uh, I was immediately taken in by this story, did a lot more digging into it, and that's uh, how the book came to be. You mentioned that digging, and there's a lot of real history that I did learn from reading at the point of a cutlass. They stripped away a lot of those disnified Pirates of the Caribbean type aspects that we never realized we're picking up, but we all pick them up, right? Things like Talk Like a Pirate Day, which is it's September 19th. You know, we all think of the patch. We all think of the the cruelty, all these things that we just absorb over the years. What are the biggest misconceptions you find people have about pirates? And when you stumbled across that idea and started researching for the book, did you share those same misconceptions and needed to sort of hash them out? Well, I think we all have many perceptions of what piracy during this era looked like, many of which are not true, including myself when I started this research. I mean, the whole concept that's been popularized by movies and Disney and so forth of walking the plank. Uh, nobody was ever made to walk a plank aboard a pirate ship. Uh, we assume pirate ships were full of treasure uh, that they captured, and that was obviously a major goal, but for the most part, the vessels that pirate ships captured weren't carrying treasure, gold, diamonds, silver. They were carrying ordinary trading goods like fish and lumber and grain and uh, rum and sugar. And that's what they captured if they chose to take it. But perhaps the biggest misconception and, and the biggest kind of realization that came out of this research is that pirate ships weren't just made up of pirates. They were comprised to a great extent, of captives like Philip Ashton, young men who were out working in trading vessels or fishing vessels who were captured and forced aboard and forced to be part of the crew because that's what it took for a pirate ship to manage itself on an everyday basis. You know, that was a, that, that was a very harsh reality for young men working at sea during this era, and I think that's the biggest probably remarkable finding that, we, that comes out of this story. You say forced aboard, which brings me to my next question. In At the Point of a Cutlass, you describe the pirates' almost Kafkaesque routine of they grab these captives and they want to force them to sign the articles that govern the ship and have things like profit sharing, which is another thing we probably don't think of when we think of pirates, how they would divide everything up. Even if they have to hold a cutlass to the throats of these so-called forced men to get their autographs, this is part of what they do. And it just seems so absurd if you if you have coercion in a contract today, speaking of Mo Green again, you know, or one in The Godfather, your signature, or your brains is going to be on the paper. We certainly wouldn't consider that legally binding or something that was an honorable thing to do. So what sort of punishment did Philip Ashton endure for refusing to sign those articles? 
Yeah, so many men, I mean, some men who were taking aboard a pirate ship voluntarily joined. They thought, okay, this is going to be better than my, my everyday job. I'm going to join. But many of the other men, like Philip Ashton and many of the men he sailed with, refused to join, even though, as you said, they were held at gunpoint. Cutlasses were waved in front of their heads. They were told their heads would be chopped off if they didn't sign their name to the articles and join the crew. But Philip Ashton steadfastly refused. And he recounts in his narrative about every week or so as they were sailing across the Atlantic and back, he would be cornered by one of the pirates, either Edward Lowe, the captain, or one of the other officers, and whipped or beaten or at least threatened with a with a whipping for not joining the crew. And he was, was forced to dash below decks and hide away in the hold for many, many hours on that voyage. And these men were treated not as members of the crew, but as servants. And they had to cook and clean and stand cold nighttime watches and really were just second-class citizens, or worse, aboard the pirate ship. But for men who did sign, you write that, quote, pirate ships were organized in a manner that was, for the 18th century, remarkably democratic, unquote. Another one of these things, we're getting a real pirate ship here, everybody. We're getting a real pirate story from back then. So explain that power structure. This isn't just you're beaten and you're lashed. It really is tempting. You have to think later we would think of Stockholm Syndrome to want to sign those articles just to be left alone and not be tortured. But for men who did sign, what was that power structure like? Yeah, so that's, again, another really interesting aspect of the way pirate ships were organized during this era of the early 1700s. They were, using the term loosely, democratic. Most things were decided by a vote of the crew, not just unilaterally by a captain, which was the case on most other vessels during this era. The rules stated, or the article stated, that the captain was in charge of the vessel only in times of battle. So if they were at battle, what the captain said ruled without questioning. But all other times, things were decided by a vote. The plunder and the treasure, whatever they captured, was divided up, uh, not equally, but but according to shares that were allocated to different members. And even the captains and the quartermasters were elected. So Edward Lowe, who was a ferociously horrific man, after some time, after several years, was actually cast away by his own crew because they became tired of his violence and another man was elected in his place. Um, and this happened on other pirate vessels during this period, too. So, yeah, this notion of democracy and fairness was one of the things that pirates were proud of and used to entice young men to join their crew. I want to get to Edward Lowe, who reads like fiction. It just doesn't seem possible that somebody could have so many varied forms of cruelty. There are three kinds of pirates, as I was reading the book. The first is Graham Chapman's portrayal of the farcical Yellowbeard from the 1983 film. I assume you're familiar with Yellowbeard to some degree, having <laughs> written this book. Yes. Second is the romantic, swashbuckling type, the Jack Sparrows of the world, an Errol Flynn-type character. But there's nothing farcical or romantic or funny about the third kind of pirate, and that's the man, Edward Lowe, who captures Philip Ashton. Describe what he was like, and what's it like when you're captured by this at times, psychotic pirate. Yeah, I mean, it must have been one of the most frightening and horrifying moments of Philip Ashton's life when he was brought aboard the the ship and came face to face with Edward Lowe. We don't know much about what Edward Lowe looked like. I believe he was a relatively short man, 
but his temper knew no bounds. We've all heard of Blackbeard, who sailed a few years before Edward Lowe, but Edward Lowe was, without question, one of the worst human beings of the 18th century. In fact, one British official at the time wrote of Edward Lowe, a greater monster never infested the seas. He was renowned for his willingness to kill or murder any sea captain he captured for the slightest refusal to cooperate. He was known for literally taking a cutlass and slicing the ears or lips or nose off of a captive man and roasting them over a fire while the victim stood there watching. Just horrific, horrific forms of torture. And as I said, eventually even his own crew tired of this. So the months and months that Philip Ashton had to spend aboard with, with Edward Lowe were, I'm sure, incredibly difficult, and what led him to make the fateful decision to try and escape. I mentioned Yellowbeard and a follow-up on that. I've seen the movie a bunch of times over the years, and so many of the things he does, so over the top, that's where the comedy comes from. They describe him in the beginning when they're introducing him as forcing victims to eat their own lips or tearing out their hearts and eating them. And since 1983, pretty much I've been laughing at that. That sounds so silly. But the joke no longer seems quite so funny because I read at the point of a cutlass, and here's Edward Lowe actually committing those atrocities, actually forcing people to eat ears and lips that he cuts off on the slightest provocation. Yeah, it's just, it's hard to believe. It's really hard to believe. But all of these incidences are documented in newspaper reports brought back by survivors and in trial records from several important trials during this era. He knew no bounds. He knew no limits. And that's what made him so atrocious. Next time you think you're having a hard time at work with your boss, everybody, we can <laughs> at least there's very little chance of this kind of cruelty anymore. It was good that they could vote him out, but it kind of took a while. It did. Philip Ashton has this fear, therefore, this brings us to, of trying to escape. If he runs and he's caught, he's going to be punished severely. But ultimately, he sees his chance and he seizes it. Describe the buildup to that moment, but also what he risks by bringing down the wrath of Edward Lowe upon himself by running. Yeah, so most of the time, he Philip Ashton sailed with Edward Lowe for about nine months. They crossed the Atlantic all the way almost to the coast of Africa and then back towards Brazil and then into the Caribbean where they went to the far western edge of the Caribbean. And numerous times along this voyage, the pirates would stop, repair their vessel, careen their vessel, clean it, and uh, get fresh drinking water at remote spots. In all of these stops, Philip Ashton was never allowed to go ashore, again, because he was a captive and because Lowe said, I'm not going to let you go ashore. I'm not going to take that chance. But in March of 1723, Lowe's crew stopped at the uninhabited island of Roatan, which is now part of Honduras, just off the coast of Honduras at the western edge of the Caribbean. And this was known at the time as one of the pirates' favorite hideouts. It was uninhabited. It was secluded, had a very protected harbor. And the pirates stopped there for about a week. They did some repairs. They rested. They relaxed. And as they were preparing to depart, a boat of pirates was going ashore to get fill their cask with drinking water, fresh water from the island. And Philip Ashton pleaded with the men to take him along. They hesitated, and he, he begged some more, and so they agreed to take Philip Ashton with him. And so he jumped into the boat. They row ashore and they land on the island. And at first, Philip helps the pirates roll the casks up onto the beach, 
he lies down at the creek running down from the hills and takes a long drink of water. And then he starts walking along the beach, casually stopping to pick up a stone or a shell every now and then. And one of the pirates says to him, well, where are you going? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm just looking for coconuts. And he keeps walking. And he gets just far enough away, and then he just turns and dashes into the woods. It's a very thickly wooded, almost jungle-like island, very hilly. And he dashes up into the hills and hides out in the thick brush and just waits for the pirates to leave. After they're finished with their work, they call for him. But quite frankly, they don't even spend much time looking for him because, as Philip Ashton later notes, no man in his right mind would run off in such a wild and desolate place. And so they leave, and Philip Ashton is free, but he's also completely alone. You went to this island to research the book, correct? I did, yes. And it's the kind of thing where we hear island in the Gulf of Mexico and coconuts and walking along the beach there. It's hard to put ourselves in those bare feet, I guess, not putting ourselves in the shoes and realize that <laughs> his ordeal, Philip Ashton's ordeal, is just beginning at this point when he runs. This is not the kind of thing where he can sit there like Gilligan's Island. There's no Marianne. There's no Ginger. There's nothing to make things easier here. This is not a comedy form. Describe the challenges he faces right off the bat just trying to survive. You know, it's interesting because Philip Ashton has been called America's real-life Robinson Crusoe, but quite frankly, he could have written the book on what not to do because he had absolutely no advance notice that he was going to be able to get ashore, right? He had uh, no warning, and so he just jumped into the boat and went. He brought nothing with him. He had no shoes, as you mentioned. He had no gun. He had no knife. And he had no way to make a fire. <laughs> he was literally, for the next nine months or so, forced to claw out a living with his bare hands. He could eat fruit, grapes, figs, and other tropical fruits he found growing on the island. He dug sea turtle eggs out of the sand. And because he couldn't cook them, he ate them raw. It was a very challenging and poor existence for him for, for many, many months because... Um, all he could do was basically graze for wild food that he could find, um, and he had no way to make a fire, so whenever it rained, he got soaked to the skin and had only the crudest shelters that he was able to build for himself. And wild boar running around there, too. So <laughs> imagine the poor guy. <laughs> that only has to be the most delicious animal of all, running around to taunt the poor guy while he's there, starving to death, literally. Literally, and yet he couldn't. The the boar, the deer, there were a lot of fowl, but he couldn't catch anything. And even if he had caught it, he couldn't have cleaned it or, or cooked it. So he was really at his wit's end. My guest is Greg Fleming, author of At the Point of a Cutlass, The Pirate Capture, Bold Escape, and Lonely Exile of Philip Ashton. Visit him at gregfleming.com or on Twitter under the handle Fleming underscore Greg or at facebook.com slash point of the cutlass. The Boston Globe writes of at the point of a cutlass, quote, the book delivers bloodthirsty pirates and plenty of action and excitement on the high seas. Forgoing an Avasti Swabi's approach, Fleming's sober style and scholarly approach, ballast his account and keep his story on a dead steady course, unquote. 
Greg, I want to zero in on those pitfalls of sensationalism, all those things that we're tempted to do, thinking of a story like Robinson Crusoe or the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. The Boston Globe notes that you avoided all of those, and I wondered to research at the point of a cutlass. You explored many of these key locations. We mentioned you going to the island. You were kind of following Ashton's odyssey. How did that help you hew that steady, factual course when telling his story? Well, it's important to remember, I mean, this is a real story. It's a true story that was uh, widely known, um, both the capture, the moment of his capture, and then his miraculous return were both publicized. I really wanted to to get as close as I could to what what his life and the events of those around him must have been like during this incredible period. So in addition to, I did obviously a great deal of archival research. I used his narrative, which is at the Massachusetts Historical Society. I used a lot of additional trial records and archival research. But I also felt it was important to go to the key locations in the story to see myself what he might have seen, uh, what he might have experienced. He was captured in a harbor off the coast of Nova Scotia called Shelburne Harbor, and I went up there, which is the very place where on June 15, 1722, the pirate ship stole into the harbor and, and captured the young fisherman. But more importantly, as you noted, I went to the island of Roatan, which even today, the end of Roatan where Philip Ashton was marooned is still uninhabited. It's only accessible by boat, and it's still very much wild and overgrown. And that was fortunate for me because I got to climb the hills and wander through the woods as he did and with my guide, take a long, meandering tour along the shoreline to look for the watering spot where where he escaped from the pirates. And to be able to, to be there and touch and breathe and feel the island where he spent almost two years just, I think, contributes significantly to the research and, I hope, to the book. He has this Scotsman who's the only one he's seen for many, many months. It's not quite his Friday, but that same feeling. If listeners have read the book, you remember just how relieved he is just when he sees that footprint. It's kind of a fear, but also a hope because he's so isolated for so long. If you were marketing at the point of a cutlass as a novel, though, an editor would never accept this character who just shows up out of the sea, out of nowhere, with food, supplies, and weapons, gives them over here to Philip Ashton, your protagonist in that sense, and then he just disappears and is gone. It would seem ridiculous in fiction, but this is what happens, and it's not funny or shocking to poor Philip Ashton. He's He kind of loses this only chance to have some human contact. How did Philip Ashton remember this Scotsman in his account of his ordeal, and is there any historical record of him that you uncovered beyond what he writes, that this man shows up here as a, an angel to him and kind of saves him? Right. So, you know, your comparison to the Friday experience in Robinson Crusoe is a good one, because by this point, Philip Ashton has been on the island eight or nine months. He's very weak. It's hard for him to move around because his bare feet are cut and bruised and wounded. And he's sitting on the shore and he sees this solitary man approach in his canoe with a, with a dock. And he's both frightened and incredibly happy, almost can't believe his eyes, that someone uh, arrives. The man turns out to be uh, someone who'd been working on the mainland and had come out to do some hunting on the islands. And as you say, he stayed with Philip Ashton for a few days and then goes off hunting. And because a storm hits the area 
and presumably capsizes his canoe, the man never returns. But that event alone saved Philip Ashton's life because he left behind a way to make a fire, some tongs, a knife. And so Philip Ashton now was no longer as strapped as he had been. He could build a fire and keep the fire going both to cook and stay warm. He could catch fish and cook them out of the sea. And he had some metal implements that certainly improved his situation. Other than Philip Ashton's description of this man and the experience, there's no other record. But we know that many of these men visited the island. Some came out a little bit later and rescued Philip Ashton because Roatan is situated in what at the time was a real hotspot of conflict. It was where loggers from New England primarily, as well as England, would come and cut logwood from what is now Belize and Honduras and ship it back to Europe. And this was Spanish territory, so Spain was always raiding these logging camps. As a result of that, um, many of the loggers would seek refuge on the islands. And there's a lot of um, documentation about this. And it was one of those men who feared a Spanish attack who decided to come out and ended up really saving Philip Ashton. You write that, quote, the cohort of pirates who sailed under Lowe were among the most successful and most violent in history. And you describe a couple of run-ins with warships along the way. These are not just sort of a lamb and a wolf here. There's also some sheepdogs in the form of the Royal Navy ship Greyhound in this one case. Again, with an eye on debunking our misconceptions, what was a fight like that like compared to what we might see in a film or what we might imagine? Well, the battle with the Greyhound in 1723 may be a battle that is most like what we see in in movies of today. It is the most celebrated battle with and capture of a pirate ship in American history. The Greyhound, which was a Royal British warship, was patrolling the east coast of America, in large part because of the wave of piracy that was impacting the area. And the Greyhound caught wind of the fact that, that Edward Lowe's two ships were sailing north just off the tip of Long Island in June of 1723. And they met up with the ships, and for a long time they just circled each other. But then gradually the pirates, fearing nothing, came right up to the warship and started firing on it. And what ensued was a 12-hour brutal, brutal battle. So two pirate vessels circling the Greyhound, the warship, all firing in turn at each other, and then taking a pause, drifting back, and then coming close again and firing again. At the end of the day, Edward Lowe and his vessel headed north up towards Block Island uh, and got away. But the second vessel was completely shot to pieces. Its mast had been shot down. Its deck was splintered. Several men had been killed. And the Greyhound captured that vessel and brought it back to Newport, Rhode Island, where the men, all the men aboard the pirate ship were put on trial. And most of them, about a month later, were hanged in what remains one of the largest mass executions in the history of America. So that was a defining event for Edward Lowe's crew, a defining event for many of Philip Ashton's friends aboard the ship. But fortunately for Philip, he had escaped already on Roatan and didn't have to survive that brutal battle. There's another captive named in your book that I found pretty cool, Fisherman John Fillmore, the great-grandfather of the 15th U.S. President, Millard Fillmore. Was his story part of the president's family lore, or did you come across that connection just in the course of your research? I came across John Fillmore's story because 
the trial of the pirate who captured him, whose name was John Phillips, happened during this same period. And of course, I read and relied heavily on many of the trials from this period. Phillips' crew, or the surviving members of Phillips' crew, including John Fillmore, who was a captive, uh, were that they were put on trial in Boston in 1724 uh, during this very same period. And several of the pirates were hanged right here in Boston. John Fillmore's story is very similar to Philip Ashton's in that he was a fisherman taken captive, forced to sail with, with pirate crew. It just reinforces, you know, how typical this was, sadly, for young men and worked at sea during this era. And um, as you said, he survived and he ended up being the great-grandfather of President Fillmore, who was very aware of his great-grandfather's story. I believe he had a copy of his narrative in his possession, and it's rumored that he also had one of the pirate swords that young John Fillmore had kept after the trial and was passed down through the generations. It seems like an amazing coincidence. I just love that kind of thing, especially because, as I say in the title sometimes of the show, history author, this idea that we're all writing history and we might not even know it. And a figure like John Fillmore couldn't have known that by enduring this ordeal, not maybe throwing himself over the side in despair or threatening the pirates in such a way that he ends up getting killed, he can't know that someday he's going to have a connection to a historical figure, much less a U.S. president. There's no U.S. at this point, I guess, when he's captured anyway. So <laughs> he can't know that he's going to someday have this lineage and have this legacy. So I, I love just having Fillmore pop up in there. I, I was like reading about him. He's sort of remembered only for the funny alliteration in his name, but he was a figure that played a real role here, at least postponing the Civil War for 10 years. So that was very great. I wonder if you had that experience when you spotted his name. Was it a kind of a fun thing to see somebody you could link to a president? Yeah, it was really a neat connection. I mean, it speaks to the fact that many young men went to sea either because uh, they were drawn by the, the allure of going to sea or because it was really... For many young men in Massachusetts, colonial Massachusetts, it was just one of the few job options available. Um, but time and again, we hear stories like that of Philip Ashton or that of John Fillmore of, you know, a ship comes over the horizon and it's a pirate ship and they go aboard and they take several of the men as captive. And you're right, if, if John Fillmore hadn't persevered and helped in the overthrow of his pirate captain, there may have never been a Millard Fillmore. Okay, Greg, the sun is sinking low over our horizon, so I'll squeeze in one last question before we head for safe harbor, and I promise that's my last pirate pun. <laughs> the question is, beyond this being an enjoyable, intense, riveting tale, what do you hope your readers will take away when they finish the last page of At the Point of a Cutlass? Because clearly you lived with Philip Ashton, you followed him, and he is a forgotten figure. It seems like all of his suffering should be remembered. He's inspiring and he tells a great tale. Well, I hope people enjoy the book. When we say Philip Ashton is a real-life Robinson Crusoe, he really was. And it's just incredible to travel with him on his voyage with the pirates and then his struggles to survive as a castaway on the uninhabited island. So first and foremost, it should be an enjoyable read. But beyond that, I think it's interesting to think about what pirates during this peak of Atlantic piracy were really like, and we've talked about some of the misconceptions we have. And I also think it just opens a, a window into what everyday life was for men who worked at sea on trading vessels that 
crisscrossed the Atlantic, sailed to the Caribbean and back, fishermen who would go out for weeks at a time from uh, New York and New England. It was a dangerous living because of all the dangers and hazards of being at sea, but it was all the more dangerous during this period because the threat of a pirate attack was very real, and many, many young men like this were taken captive and forced to sail aboard pirate ships during this era. And think of being the family back home. Think of being the wife or the mother or the father or the brother waiting and just going to the sea every day. In Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey, my beach town, there's the statue there of the man looking out there. We have those statues all up and down the eastern coast because of that. You know, think of waiting because you might never know. And there he is, Philip Ashton, just fighting to get back home and prove that he's okay and tell his story and just survive. So it really is moving and it's something that I don't think we can relate so much to today, but you certainly made me relate to it in the book. Great. It was fascinating to research, a great story to write, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I hope that people will check out At the Point of a Cutlass, this true story. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I hope many people will set sail with Philip Ashton. They can hiss at Edward Lowe and meet the rest of that Motley crew. Thank you, Dean. Again, the book is At the Point of a Cutlass, The Pirate Capture, Bold Escape, and Lonely Exile of Philip Ashton. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com We take you to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no extra charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My swashbuckling thanks to Greg Fleming for joining us and for welcoming us aboard this true pirate adventure. Visit him at gregfleming.com under the handle Fleming underscore Greg on Twitter or facebook.com slash point of the cutlass. And while you're dialed into your modem, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until we next set sail into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.